0: Calling all memoirists, another amazing six-week course is coming your way starting October 4th, and it's one you don't want to miss. I am co-leading Women Writing Memoir with Linda Joy Myers in a new offering following several successful boot camps that we launched in the past year and a half, and this time we're tackling some intense stuff like the emotions memoirists face from shame to anger to fear and how to write through the hard stuff. The lineup is also something to behold. Your teachers will be Piper Kerman, author of Orange is the New Black, Elizabeth Naya Mayaro, author of I Am a Girl from Africa, Nadia Boltz-Weber, author of Pastrix, Feruze Dumas, author of Funny and Farsi, Gina Frangello, author of Blow Your House Down, and Lily Danziger, author of Negative Spaces. Right now, you can take advantage of early bird pricing, six weeks for 225 bucks. so we hope you'll check it out at www.magicofmemoir.com. If you're writing memoir, join us, or maybe just share the link with a friend. Thank you so much. Hello, defiers, Soars, and lion-hearted listener writers. I am Brooke Warner. Hello. We are back after our August hiatus with a brand new episode and then 11 months of new episodes to follow this one. And thank goodness I'm back with my dynamic co-host, Grant Faulkner, uh, so we can keep on being the dynamic duo of writing podcasts. Welcome back, Grant.
1: (laughs) Yeah, thank you, Brooke. Um, And part of that spellbinding dynamism that I know that everybody experiences out there um, is that we've got a lot of great guests lined up, uh, including Dave Eggers, Charlie Jane Anders, Laura Davis, and Matthew Salasis, to name just a few. So it's going to be a good year of conversations about creativity.
0: Yeah, I am super excited about that. And and we're coming in out the gate with kind of a hard topic, but also an important guest today with Farouze Duma, who is the author of Funny and Farsi, which is a book that I read years ago and absolutely loved and was thrilled, honestly, when she was willing to teach this topic, you know, which is kind of inspiring in a roundabout way. And it's a burden we carry when we write. It's a feeling. It's also very common. And yes, I know that everybody knows what it is because of the episode title. But we are talking about shame today. And I think it's overdue that we talk about it. It's a topic that so many writers have to confront after all.
1: Yeah, it is overdue, Brooke. Um, at the same time, I'm also happy to run away from it. Um, <laughs> always. <laughs> uh, always a confrontation. But uh, seriously, though, when I look back on past episodes, it's been a while since we've talked about, you know, a specific emotion, negative emotion in particular on the show. And we did selfishness with Claire Detterer, uh, which is less a feeling and more a behavior. But shame comes up in all sorts of ways when we write, whether it's the content we risk exploring on the page or just the act of writing itself. Um, you know, when I'm thinking about this, it's 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 easy for me to forget this now. You know, because I've been writing for years. But when I first started writing, it felt weird to tell others I was a writer, as if I was exposing myself to possible embarrassment or shame. And then I I I think the best writing. I've said this many times. It's the writing where we are the most vulnerable. So shame is naturally coupled with writing and creation to some degree, I think, because no matter if you write fiction or memoir, no matter if you write with a pseudonym or persona, writing anything is an act of exposure in some way. And so exposure means it's possibly an act of shame. Uh, But let's get to that inspiring side of shame you brought up, Brooke. Um, How can this nasty, horrible, creatively stifling feeling of shame be inspiring?
0: Yeah, let me answer that. Thank you. Uh, Because I do think that shame can be inspiring. The way it can be inspiring, actually, is that it helps you to pinpoint the shit that you're carrying that is not yours to carry. Shame, obviously, is about humiliation or fear of humiliation. So writers, of course, can feel shame about so many different things. I mean, I've I've deal with this kind of all the time with my clients and my students. Right. So I've just seen it's about writers, you know, not feeling like they're good enough. Uh, You know, it might be that the actual thing they're revealing is something very personal or true, as we're talking about. I mean, that's memoir and fiction. And so then that feels shameful just because it's true and there are feelings about that. Uh, It might be about not performing to whatever expectations writers hold for themselves. And it can also be about what other people say about their writing or what they anticipate someone is going to say about their writing. And, you know, I appreciate what you shared there, Grant, that the very act of telling someone you were a writer felt shameful in the beginning, because that just shows like the insidiousness of shame and how it can be like a backdrop to our experience of writing just as a whole. And I've noticed that shame comes up on the sly, definitely. Like it attacks us where we're already hurt. It can attack where we already have a wound. And so if you identify that stuff and work through it, Then there's a release. And so that's the part that I'm getting at that's inspiring. Um, I do think it needs to be released. And that writing is actually one of the few ways to do it. It can be kind of like a valve or letting the air out from a balloon. And then the more you write, uh, and the more you put your work out there, the more pressure you release. And, uh, you know, I think it it is just one way that I know that really helps writers to soar, even though we're going to get those shame attacks, you know, probably for the rest of our writing lives.
1: Shame attacks is a good way to put it. And I like that metaphor a lot. It certainly applies to me. And I'm interested in Farouzay Dumas' take on shame. Farouzay is our guest today. I can't remember if we said that or not, Um, but she is coming. She's talking about shame because this is a topic you and she chose for an upcoming class. She's teaching in one of your new six-week memoir classes. And so I looked into what she's had to say about shame, and she said in an interview about her book, Funny and Farsi, which is a memoir about growing up as an Iranian immigrant in America. She says, uh, and speaking about Iranian culture, I believe, she says, The biggest obstacle we have in our culture is shame. We are a shame-based culture that prevents people from speaking honestly. This whole idea of if you do the wrong thing, it's not a learning lesson. It's you bringing shame on your entire family for three generations. That's it right there. We're not allowed to be authentic because who wants to bring shame to three generations of our families? And when I read that, um, it was interesting to me because I think it might be, you know, me speaking as a, an American individualist, but I, I really foc- only focus on bringing shame on myself, not multiple generations. And I, I guess I can pinpoint some moments where I've been concerned that some stories I publish could bring something like shame or embarrassment on my parents, but but nothing quite as severe or long lasting as a shame that lasts generations, literally. So, So I think the shame she's talking about is even way more embedded in her life culturally than it is in mine. So yeah, I guess I guess I wanted to know what is it about shame that led you and Feruze to s- decide it should get its own class coming up.
0: Yeah, honestly, I was excited that she wanted to teach about shame. She brought it up and I had already been thinking about it. I had approached a couple of the other teachers and the reaction was definitely tepid. <laughs> so like we have Piper Kerman and I had asked her first and she said, why teach about shame when you can teach about all the other scary emotions? Uh, and so that is totally true. And, you know, to carry a whole class on shame is really something. And so when Fruze said she would, I was just like, this is great. You know, I think that writers really do need a container to have the conversation and to just be understanding that you are not alone with this. You know, I, I just have so many, memories, experiences, you know, writers who have written about abuse or sexual attack or having been addicts, lots of women with shame around having had abortions, lots of people uh, with shame around mental health issues, you know, so these are really common experiences, you know, and I think what happens is like, if we have all of this cultural shame, you know, I'm thinking about things like being scapegoated or being different in any way, being gay, right? It's like our culture just heaps all this stuff. And, you know, ironically, or I I don't know, commonly, maybe it's, it's more common to feel shame rather than pride. And so for memoirists, this is where it's at, you know, it's like, it's where the rubber meets the road, because you're expected to write into these experiences and to expose them. And then paradoxically, I guess, writers are celebrated, the more they expose their shameful experiences. And so memoir writers are definitely having to contend with this, like, what are they going to share, and then dealing with the potential fallout of those revelations?
1: Yeah, I think it applies to fiction writers in in a different way as well. Um, And as you were talking, I was thinking about what an interesting irony it the irony of revelation is that it speaks to this deeper, very valuable truth, and it will certainly get you more attention as an author, but then it also carries the risk of shame, which is all about ostracization in the end. Um, And I think we're so genetically wired to want and need to belong, which is why we can be so hesitant to reveal things about ourselves that might cause us to not belong. But I'm interested, you know, also in, you know, this kind of I guess journey of shame that then possibly leads to a breakthrough and I'm I'm mentioning this in part because I just read an interview with Monica Lewinsky and and her journey from shame to what might be called a breakthrough is is really interesting and and harrowing because it took a long time uh but she broke through the shame largely through writing which is interesting um but also the world had to be ready for for what she wrote to receive it
0: and Monica Lewinsky is a great example. You know, I mean, God, what, uh, what a shameful journey, right? And I think that she has completely turned that around to where most women, I mean, Monica and I are practically the same age. Um, and I think most women of our generation really admire how she worked through that. And I think that's the other thing, you know, we have a culture that is very quick to shame. And it almost seems like there's not very much room for redemption. But the, I mean, maybe it's exactly what we're trying to say here is that one of the ways to work to redemption is is through writing, and so i uh, again this this whole thing of not being so alone in in it, you know whatever you're holding so tight as shameful you write it. And then maybe you realize you're not so alone, maybe you get some comments, you get some people championing you. And uh, I often say to my writers that what feels like a boulder to you is going to land like a pebble for your reader. And the reason that I say that is because we hold ourselves emotionally hostage um, a lot. And I've worked with several memoirists who later regretted taking something out of their book because it felt too scary or too shameful. And so there's kind of this truism, I guess, of letting the cards fall. And uh, I think ultimately, most memoirists will find that the revolutions are really freeing.
1: Yeah, it's interesting on the level of just when I think about societal change in my life, a lot of it has, has happened because of bold revelations by a lot of people. And, and and when they make those revelations, it does change like our our cultural norms and, and the way we talk about them. And I mean, it's, it's the power of people's stories that makes us more understanding and forgiving or celebratory of a variety of different kinds of behaviors and identities. You know, I think it's, it's only through brave revelations that we overcome harmful taboos. Um, but, yeah, as we 've been talking about revelation 's tough, and even if the world is more accepting with some issues uh it 's it 's still tough, so there 're obviously you know dangerous forces of of intolerance still still out there so i 'm curious, Brooke, do you have any good advice for people who are listening to this and they 're they 're feeling you know that hesitancy about writing or publishing some of these supposedly shameful things. I mean, you said uh, I love that quote about a boulder being a pebble, but is mm-hmm. there any way? It's still a tough thing to to get over that boulder. <laughs>
0: I mean, I, I, another thing I say to my students is don't put the publishing cart before the writing horse because everybody does that. You know, they're envisioning like, oh, my God, I'm going to write the most shameful thing that I've ever gone through. And then it's going to be out in the world and it's going to be public and everybody's going to hate me. And it's like they're getting way ahead of themselves. Right. So my advice is just write. Don't get caught up in the making it public part. Write in a safe place presuming that's possible I mean, it could be a diary or a word document on a computer you could put a password on it if you, if necessary uh, and then also just doing that writing in a way that is just for you in the beginning especially if it's really tinged with shame because the first step is just to have the courage to put it on the page in the first place not as a book right just for you and then see how that feels and then see if it loses its charge over time And maybe it doesn't, uh, but at least you will have learned something about the degrees of shame and those shame attacks in my experience do largely dissipate with, with the more time that that shameful thing is sort of out in the open with air exposed on it.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's interesting how writing allows us to be a witness and to realize deeper truths. And I think those deeper truths that we uncover in writing are really the keys to the bravery that Revelation takes. I think writing also, it just helps you take back your story from others, whether you're projecting that story on others or whether they actually kind of have it. And it's, it's those others, you know, who are, whether they're real or imagined, who are creating the shame in the end. There's also the technique of humor, uh, which applies to Firouze, uh because she's a humorist and she tackles shame through that lens um, of showing things that are funny, but underlying these humorous experiences with shame or exposing the shame. So I'm really interested in shame as it impacts writers, but also how writers use shame as a subject in their work. So we'll tackle all of this and more when we connect with Firouze Dumas right after this very short break.
0: Welcome back, everybody. We are here today with Farouze Dumas, who is an award-winning author and humorist, best known for her New York Times bestsellers, Funny and Farsi and Laughing Without an Accent. Her award-winning middle-grade novel, It Ain't So Awful Falafel, is a favorite among educators. She has also written for the New York Times and many other publications and recently finished her first screenplay. Farouze travels the world, usually, when it's not during COVID, and on the lecture circuit, reminding us that our commonalities far outweigh our differences. Welcome, Farouze. We're so happy to have you.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I'm kicking off with a tough subject, and that's just because you're going to be teaching about shame in an upcoming memoir course that I'm co-leading, and I'm really thrilled to have you uh, for this and that. (laughs) And uh, we chose this theme together, and your class is called What You Need to Know About Shame in Memoir Writing. And so I was wondering if you could tell listeners what makes you enthusiastic about teaching on that topic and why it's important to memoir specifically.
2: Well, I picked shame because I am an Iranian American. I don't know if your listeners uh, know my story, but I came to America when I was seven. And when I started writing my stories when I was 36 years old, I realized that the reason why I hadn't even started uh, before then was because shame is so deeply woven into my DNA. And when you're from my part of the world, when you do something that is deemed shameful, it's not that you're just bringing shame upon yourself. You are bringing shame upon your family for three generations before you and three generations after you. So it's really paralyzing. Like the fear of shame is so huge. I would have to say it's, it was probably, and in a way still is, like the biggest obstacle to authenticity.
1: That's so interesting for Uzay. And, you know, it, it makes me think about the value of everyone's story, and, and this is a mantra that we have in NaNoWriMo, that everyone has a story to tell and that everyone's story counts, you know, and that mantra, we hope, reduces people's obstacles to writing and the shame they might feel. So I was wondering if you can talk about this sentiment and what about your experience led to this belief?
2: So, you know, I've always said everybody has a story to tell and everybody's story counts. And when I, um, when I started writing my stories, I should say for those of, the, of your listeners who have never read my work. There's nothing controversial about my writing. There's nothing shocking. But to give you an example of one of the things that I was told was very shameful in my writing is uh, I'm a humorist. And so um, one of the things I write about is when I was seven years old and we came to America, I became my mother's translator. And I was really resentful of having to go everywhere with her. I mean, I had to go to the doctors with her. I mean, every time there was an errand, I had to go with her. And... And I and I hated that. And then and whenever she tried would try to speak, her accent was so thick and she had her own idea of grammar. And I was just always embarrassed. So now that seems like a really innocuous statement uh, to say. But when my book came out, when Funny and Farsi, my first memoir came out, I got so much slack about that, that, you know, people would say to me, like, how dare you? Like, that is so shameful that you're saying you were embarrassed by your mother. And I said, well, I'm not saying I'm embarrassed by my mother's existence. I'm just saying I was embarrassed as a seven-year-old that my mother didn't speak the language and that when she tried to speak, it was so unique. (laughs) And so, I mean, that's such an innocent comment, but in my culture, because we are only supposed to write about our parents in a glowing way, that we're only supposed to emphasize how wonderful everybody is, that for me to write that way was such a departure. So, um, you know, it's for Westerners, like, this is a nothing burger. (laughs) And for my people, it's like the whole kebab. Like, what? Um, You know, you cannot say that your mother, that you're ever embarrassed of your mother. Like, that is just shameful, period.
0: I wanted to... Kind of follow on that thread of being a humorist. I mean, even your titles are funny. I mean, funny and farsi, laughing without an accent. I love the children's book. It ain't so awful, falafel. Um, and and but also about the connection. You know, it's like shame through the lens of humor. Maybe I don't know. Sort of deactivates it a little bit for you or for your readers. And and maybe I was also thinking. You know, there's humor through the lens of shame. So in your writing. Has there been a connection between humor and shame? And has it worked that way for you?
2: Well, the great thing about being a humorist, it really does allow me to say a lot of things that if said in a serious tone would come off very differently. And so, you know, even when I'm talking about, um, like there's an incident I write about in my first book where uh, we had these insects in our house and we called the exterminator and they were actually silverfish. So we called the exterminator and I told my mother what to say because I wanted her to talk on the phone. And she said to the exterminator to hurry up because there were goldfish all over our house. (laughs) So, you know, that's a funny, uh, I I I thought it was hilarious. Even as a kid, I thought it was hilarious. And I still think it's hilarious. But again, some people read that and they go, oh, well, isn't that shameful? You are writing about your mother's innocent mistake and you have put it on paper. It is there now forever. So part of the problem is, some people just don't have a sense of humor. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is part of the problem, actually. <laughs> it
2: is, it is. And so as a writer, is it, my, is it my responsibility to think of every audience member and how they might react? Well, of course not. You know, as a writer, it's my job to be authentic. And let me just say this. I am a very gentle human being and I'm a gentle writer. I have never used my writing to get revenge or to be mean. I use my writing to tell the truth. And so it's interesting to me that even within that very simple little space of just telling the truth in a gentle way, I can still offend people.
1: It's the ultimate um, crux for a writer in some ways, you know, that the the truth, it leads you away from shame in the end, I think, but sometimes it opens up the, the possibility of shame.
2: Well, you know, I mean, I think, let me just say this, like I come from a culture, so I am, I'm 56 years old. So when I came to America, there were no Iranians in the town I lived in. I came in 1972. So it was seven years before the revolution. And there were no Iranians in my town. There were no Iranians in my school. So it was just us. I mean, it was like being a polar bear in Hawaii. We We were very different and there was nobody else like us. So when I was writing my stories about that time, I realized that my situation would have been very different if I had come now, if I had even come 20 years ago. So people have to understand that when I write about my truth, it may sound very different to what they're used to. But that's because in 1972 in Whittier, California, we were the only Iranians and our experience today would be very different. But that doesn't take away my truth just because it doesn't match somebody else's truth. And this is something that people will say to me, like other immigrants will say, well, I don't, I don't really believe what you said, like, that wasn't my experience. And I go, yeah, because we don't have the same experience.
0: Yeah, it's so interesting. And thanks for bringing that up. Because I actually had this quote that I wanted to reference and read back to you something that you wrote in your book that says, um, well, actually, this might have been an interview, you'll you'll have to tell me. So it says, uh, when my parents and I get together today. We often talk about our first year in America. Even though 30 years have passed, our memories have not faded. We remember the kindness more than ever, knowing that our relatives who immigrated to this country after the Iranian revolution did not encounter the same America. They saw Americans who had bumper stickers on their cars that read, Iranians go home, or we play cowboys and Iranians. My relatives did not think Americans were very kind. And I think, of course, you're speaking to that right now and saying, you know, your family came in 72, you were young. And I'm curious about the immigrant narrative right now, because specifically how it's being received by the publishing industry and by readers. It's, it's a fraught moment for immigrants on the one hand, but it also feels like a, a moment where immigrant stories are also being received in, in a way that to me anyways, uh, from inside the industry feels embracing. So I'm curious if you could speak to the, you know, the way that you were maybe embraced or not. So I don't know what your experience was of publishing, especially Funny and Farsi versus how you perceive people are being embraced today with immigration narratives.
2: So like when I was trying to get published uh, back in the year 2001, I was the first Iranian American humorist. And so I got rejection after rejection after rejection because all the editors, all the agents told me that, that there's no market for hu- Middle East and humor, that it just seemed like a weird combo to them. And I remember a, a, one prominent agent told me that if I could write about oppression, I could probably get published because oppression is hot. Oppression is in. And of course, I was not oppressed. So I didn't want to write about oppression. And she even said to me, she said, why don't you write about your mother or somebody who was oppressed? And I said, actually, I want to write about how funny we are and how, you know, the way my dad looks at the world. Because my father, who is 95 years old, God bless, he is one of the most enlightened men I have ever met. And I've never heard about a Middle Eastern man who is enlightened. I mean, I hear when I read, I read about Middle Eastern men who are terrible, who oppress women. My dad always said that every girl must be educated. And she's and he used to say to me, A girl who is not educated has no power and she is at the mercy of others. Every girl has to be educated. Now I grew up thinking this is what every father tells their daughter. And it wasn't until I was in, you know, I was at a university and I thought, wow, that is a really enlightened thing to hear. I, I, it really wasn't until then that I realized what a rare father I have. So I, you know, I had never seen myself in a book or a film. So this is why I, I really wanted to tell my story so my, my children would know about me. Now, skipping to today, I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful that there are so many books now representing different voices. I think it's like, you know, when I came to America, there were only like 14 spices at the supermarket. Now there's like 200 spices. I love it. I love that I can go find anything at my local supermarket. And I find like, it's the same thing in a bookstore. I love that I can go and say, Hey, do you have anything uh, about a gay Filipino uh, immigrant? And you know, there's, <laughs> a, there's a book somewhere about that. And if there isn't, I hope someone's writing it right now. I think it's, I think it's win, win, win. Now, one big difference though, between my experience and immigrants today is this. I never had the luxury to feel offended Whatever anybody ever said to us or asked of us, we smiled and tried to accommodate. And I think part of the reason I became an educator and a, and, and a citizen diplomat is it was the only role available to me, and it has served me really well. I'm a successful writer because I'm also a successful lecturer, and I'm a successful lecturer because. I'm very patient with people's stupid questions, because to me, it's better to ask a stupid question than to not ask at all. So one thing that concerns me today is I want to make sure that we're still having conversations, even if the person asking a question is a stupid question, because if that is an earnest question, then I would hope that someone would have the compassion to answer it. Now, I'm not talking about people who are disrespectful and ask I understand intent. So if you ask me a question because you're trying to insult me, that's not, that's not cool. But throughout my life, I've had people ask me questions that are so beyond, like, you know, I remember one time um, somebody asked my father if he has more wives back home. <laughs> Genuinely, this man thought my father had multiple wives and one was here in California and there were more waiting for him in Iran. And I remember my dad just laughed and he said, no, trust me, one is more than enough. I have only one wife. (laughs) And, you know, when I I look back at that, because I remember my dad could have been terribly insulted by that question, but it's like we didn't have the option. And I'm not saying it's better than what is today, but let's also remember that if we want to enlighten the population, we all have to be willing to do our part. So everybody has to step out of the comfort zone a little bit. And sometimes that means having conversations that we'd rather not have. Because we just think the other person should know the answer.
1: Well, Faruza, I'm interested in those, those conversations that go beyond the book, because I know that you're, you, know, you have a, a very substantial, lively um, you know, uh, speaking career. And, and I was wondering, were you expecting that when you published Funny and Farsi? Or were you comfortable with speaking? Because I know a lot of writers, there. That's, that's why they're writers. They don't really want to speak. So tell us a little bit about your speaking career.
2: Okay, well, this is going to require a longer, a a long answer, because I have to go back to my speaking career, which started in middle school. (laughs) And we in my drama class, we had to write a commercial. And me and my unfortunate partner, um, and I say unfortunate, because she was with me, we decided to do a serial commercial. And so we wrote this very funny serial commercial, which was going to be uh, uh, videotaped. And I decided on my own, after practicing endless times in the bathroom mirror, that I was going to deliver this as a robot. (laughs) Now my partner said, she thought this was a bad idea. And I said, no, trust me, trust me on this. I know what I'm doing. So I stood in front of the class. It was the first time I was ever speaking in public. I stood in front of my uh, middle school class. I think it was seventh grade and I froze. I absolutely froze. Mm. So and 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 the teacher tried like three times. Well, that was a dead robot. And I decided I would never speak in public again. So fast forward a few decades, and here I am, I make a living on the lecture circuit, which I absolutely love. And I guess what I've come to realize is that when you're speaking about something that matters to you, it's actually extremely fulfilling. So maybe doing a serial commercial as a robot, that wasn't my <laughs> that was not going to be a positive experience no matter what. So my My lecture uh, career started completely by accident. It was serendipitous. Um, I was, when Funny and Farsi came out, it was chosen for something called Orange County Reads One Book. This was a community reading program. And I was asked to go to Orange County for three weeks and to speak at rotary clubs and senior homes and libraries and book clubs and basically anywhere where they wanted to have a writer. So I did that for three weeks and uh i was not paid <laughs> people always think that writers make all this money from doing stuff like this no i was not paid but i had a chance to speak to many many different groups and i love speaking at senior homes it's great practice because there's always people asleep and <laughs> i mean this in all seriousness like it is really good practice to be able to give your speech when somebody is like in deep deep rem mm. and one of the places i spoke at was a junior high and then afterwards i love teachers because they talk to other teachers all the time. And so I spoke at this junior high. It was absolutely thrilling for me. I had such a great time. That one junior high led to literally over the past, you know, 20 years, like hundreds of other schools. So what I discovered is I absolutely love public speaking. I now keynote conferences all over the world. I, I speak at, you know, middle schools and high schools and universities, of course, when there's not COVID. And It's 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 wonderful to me. There's a I mean, I don't mean to sound weird about it, but it's like I feel like it's my calling, like having these conversations and connecting with people. I just feel like that's what I was put here to do. And I before uh, COVID, I used to go to rural America a lot. I mean, I've been to Arkadelphia, Arkansas and rural Maine and places where they had never even had a conversation with a Middle Easterner before. I have never once had a bad experience, not a single time, because When you go with the intent of just speaking your truth without any intention to preach or to teach a lesson, but just to connect with another human being, people feel that and they respond.
0: Well, that's awesome, Fruzan. I'm, it just makes me so happy and thrilled that you're going to be teaching for us coming up uh, and we'll get to see you in action beyond just an interview, which is which is also good. Uh, and, and we're going to close. I do have a final question for you uh, about I watched another interview recently where you were talking about the notion of there being a dark cloud over the whole Middle East. And obviously, in the wake of the recent exit from Afghanistan, this is more true than ever. And I'm just wondering what advice you have for writers or listeners who maybe are Middle Eastern, or honestly, anyone who's writing under this perception of a dark cloud over their culture, Um, you know, can writing and reading lift that cloud?
2: Well, I think writing and reading uh, teaches teaches us about one another. And for so long in this country, we've, we've depended on the evening news to learn about other countries. But that is like, the worst of every country and there's it's not the job of the evening news to teach us about one another so what i suggest is that we need to somehow or another keep talking so whether that's through writing stories or actually talking to one another speak your truth and you know one of the things i always do when i go to schools i find an excuse to sing happy birthday in persian because so many of the kids look at look at me with this look like oh they celebrate birthdays in the middle east Because to these kids, the Middle East is all about bombings and and wars and sadness. Like they forget, like, you know, right now there's an eight-year-old kid having a birthday party somewhere, whatever that may look like to that child, or at least some kind of, of, of celebration trying to. And there's a mother trying to do something for that child. I just think it's important that we tell what we need to tell. And this is not to say that we can't share our sad stories. Of course, we have to share our sad stories. But I think it's important that we share the big picture and there's a lot more to the middle east than just sorrow
0: thank you so much Frise, for being with us and i'll look forward to seeing you too in uh in october
1: thank you for that's great
2: thank
0: you we'll be right back with today's book trend So hey, everybody, we are excited to be presenting a new concept with the book trend that will be closing each of our episodes. And we're going to choose something happening in the world of books or book publishing that we think you should know about. And so today's book trend is Amazon cracking down on reviews meaning that authors are increasingly discovering that only verified purchasers can review their books on Amazon. And probably whether we like it or not, Grant, a lot of our book trends are gonna involve Amazon because they certainly set trends due to their massiveness.
1: Yeah, and I know how authors, including me, can get pretty obsessive about Amazon, um, especially with their their rankings and their reviews. So it's tough for writers that Amazon has these policies, and yet I do understand that they're trying to prevent people from gaming the system, or you know, they're trying to put some checks and balances on reviews. And honestly, way back years ago, this is probably seven, eight years ago. I, I know before some of this, these things were in place. I know someone who got hundreds of. What I'll call questionable reviews through somewhat unethical ways of you know boosting the number of people who who posted those reviews, and you know at the same time it, this still happens on on some level as a as a sort of best practice for authors. You know we're we're guided to to email friends and family and ask for people to to review our books just like we're doing here on our podcast. You know because. When people review our podcast or our books, we, we get more visibility and more discoverability and, you know, get to, to share our message and create a dialogue around these things. So it's a, it's a world we're still figuring out.
0: Yeah, that's really true. But I did have an idea for Amazon because who knows, maybe someone there is listening. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah,
1: uh, it, you are know, that would... out there, Amazon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> exactly. And that's to add a line in the review submission that asks, where did you get this book? Then the reviewer could just disclose. I got it from NetGalley. I got it at an author event. I got it from my local bookstore, and I think that would be a way better way of handling this. And then they'd be encouraging transparency and growing the entire review platform as a, uh, at the same time. So my idea.
1: That is a fantastic idea. Let's hope that Amazon's listening, um, because I've often, you know, purchased uh, a friend's book or just a book elsewhere. And I don't see why my review should be devalued or you know not allowed because it didn't happen. The purchase didn't happen on Amazon, and you know I, I struggle with this myself because I support a thriving book ecosystem, um, and I want my readers to buy my book at indie bookstores. And I promote Bookshop, uh, but Bookshop you know doesn't have a review feature, and so those Amazon reviews are really coveted and they improve your rankings. And I've had other. Writers tell me to actually forget other platforms and go all in on Amazon because something like 75% of books are purchased on Amazon. But I think a healthy book ecosystem as a whole is 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 more important for a whole bunch of reasons, and I'd even argue that it's good for Amazon too. I think I think that overall book environment helps them in their sales. So I hope they add your feature recommendation.
0: Yeah, I just had a little ray of hope that maybe our book trends segment could one day be setting book trends.
1: Yeah, they could even tag uh, that feature suggested on <laughs> right minded the Right Minded podcast by Brick Warner. There we go. That's supporting the the writing community.
0: That's right. So I'll look forward to many more of these segments. Uh, I do think that understanding the publishing industry and being more informed is the goal. And so whether or not it's always going to be inspiring, well, that's a whole other question.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we might have to be, I have to change our tagline to weekly inspiration and just one bummer for writers. <laughs>
0: <Yeah>. <laughs> Hopefully our listeners could get down with that. Uh, and yeah, there we go. So I'm just going to transition to saying thank you. Thank you all for joining us for a new season per usual, you know, we're in a new season I'm like, my gosh, it's our fourth year. So please share with a friend, subscribe, you know, all those things that you do to help us boost visibility. Like we were talking about earlier, we really appreciate you all and here we go.